Okay, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. It is so good to be here with you tonight, um, guys. We are we have a lot to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about Lag Omer. We're going to talk about the weekly parsha, and I just want to start by dedicating this class to. Unfortunately, there was a tragedy that just took place in Israel. Um, tonight is Lagba Omer, which is the um, the yurt site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. We're going to talk about who he was and what that means. So thousands and thousands of people go to his grave in northern Israel to pray and to dance and sing. It's like an amazing thing. Um, and one of there seems to have been some sort of a uh, overcrowding, trampling type of issue or a collapse of some sort of structure. It's not clear yet what happened, but unfortunately 38 people just passed away which is like crazy and there are another 50 people who are injured and 20 in critical condition so we're just going to dedicate tonight's class to everyone should be healthy and um, have a refu shlema and i also want to dedicate this in the memory of um, a local rabbi his name is rabbi yitzhak lowenbrun who passed away this morning and I just went to his funeral today. And he was a very, very instrumental um, leader in the world of Jewish outreach. He started something called AJOP, American Jewish Outreach Professionals uh, Convention, where basically rabbis from all over the country came together and uh, got support. And so uh, it was very, very inspirational to be at his funeral today because he was someone who ha- happens to be today was the 32nd day of the Omer. And the, the number 32 in Hebrew spells lave, which means heart. And everyone kept commenting on how his, he had such a heart for the Jewish people. And uh, I was just very inspired about what it means to devote your life to helping other people. And I hope that I can emulate his ways a little bit. So, okay. So, welcome, Jaylene. We're just starting now. So, what is Lagba Omer? Does anyone know what we're celebrating today? Anyone? Yes. Great. So today is the yurt site, as we just mentioned, of Rebbe Shimon. Who was Rebbe Shimon? Rebbe Shimon was one of the great Tanayim, one of the rabbis of the Talmud, Talmudic period, who lived in Israel about uh, 1800 years ago, after the destruction of the temple. And what's so special about Rabbi Shimon, as opposed to all of the Talmudic rabbis are special, but what's unique about Rabbi Shimon is that Rabbi Shimon is the principal um, rabbi who's quoted in the Zohar. The Zohar is the primary book of Kabbalah. So most of the teachings in the Zohar come from Rabbi Shimon. And Rabbi Shimon passed away on this day. And on the day of his death, he revealed the main teachings of the Zohar. And... uh, the, the Zohar discusses at length the, that day and how the room was lit up with this spiritual f- flame from the passion that uh, and, the, and the spiritual revelations that he was teaching on that day. So that's number one. Number two reason why we celebrate on this day. Does anyone know the other reason? So the other reason has to do with Rebbe Akiva. Rebbe Akiva was actually the Rebbe 
of Rebbe Shimon. He was Rebbe Shimon's primary Rebbe. And uh, the story of Rebbe Akiva is always inspiring. One of the greatest stories uh, in history. And I'll just, I'll tell you that story very briefly. Um, Rebbe Akiva was a shepherd who lived in northern Israel at the time of the destruction of the temple or shortly after shortly after the time of destruction of the temple and he was unlearned he didn't know he didn't even know really how to read he was illiterate he didn't know how to learn and he used to be very angry against Talmudic Torah scholars and um, he at one point um, started a relationship with the landowner whose sheep he was herding with the landowner's daughter the landowner was a very rich man and his daughter whose name was Rachel Rachel uh, and Rabbi Akiva eloped essentially and Rachel saw in Rabbi Akiva an incredible strength and a spiritual passion and she said to him I will marry you on condition that you become a rabbi and Rabbi Akiva didn't even know how to learn now listen to this story okay have you guys heard this story already Rabbi Akiva didn't even know how to learn and he uh the, the Talmud says that he went out into the woods to think about her proposal and he saw he went to a place where there was like a little bit of a waterfall and he saw a rock that had been hollowed out with a hole in the middle of the rock and he saw that there was a drip of water that was just dripping on the rock and he said if a rock which is hard can be hollowed out by water which is soft so my heart which is soft can be hollowed out by the Torah which is compared to fire so Rabbi Akiva um, and and Rachel got married and her father disowned them and they went and they moved to a town and he started going to kindergarten he went to kindergarten at, at, a, at age 40 and started learning how to read and uh, then eventually went to study in uh, in the main yeshiva in I think it was uh, in Usha at the time and he came back 14 years later and was the leader of the Jewish people. He had uh, basically became, to, risen to such a height. And one, one day his father-in-law came to him not knowing who he was. And his father-in-law regretted having disowned his daughter and son-in-law. And he said, I disowned them because my daughter married a complete uh, unsophisticated, uh, unlearned guy. And I wanted her to marry a, a scholar. And a rabbi, and Rabbi Kiva said, "If your son, if you, if you had known that your son-in-law would have ended up like a great rabbi, like me, would you have disowned them?" He said, "Absolutely not." And so Rabbi Kiva said, "Your, your, your vow is null and void because here I am." And uh, so that's the story of Rabbi Kiva. And there, but there's really Rabbi Kiva is really a tragic figure because in his lifetime, he embraced uh, Bar Chachba, who was a Jewish leader. A rabbi and a general who Rabbi Akiva thought was Mashiach and he stood behind Bar Chachma and it turned out that Bar Chachma was not Mashiach Bar Chachma was killed by the Romans and um, additionally there was a plague that befell Rabbi Akiva's students a plague broke out in specifically in the yeshiva and it was actually a, a coronavirus type of plague it was uh, affected the lungs and 24,000 students died in, in their 
uh, yeshiva. It's obviously a very, like a city. And, um, and the death stopped. The plague ended on this day. So you can now, we can like really understand that, right? Imagine like one, one day we're going to say coronavirus is over. You know, it's not going to be like over, over, but it's going to be mostly over. We're almost there. So that took place on Lagba Omer. So we mourn their death during this time period, which took place during the entire time period of the Sphira. So from Passover until now is when the bulk of the students died. And um, so, and at the end of Rabbi Akiva's life, Rabbi Akiva was caught by the Romans who prohibited Torah study. And he was caught teaching Torah. And he was, his skin was flayed with hot combs. And he was killed as, as a martyr. So um, we'll discuss a little bit about his death a little bit later. So the questions that we want to understand is, why did Rebbe Akiva's students specifically die? And the Talmud tries to always understand, in Judaism, we always try to understand the message when a tragedy happens. Why is this happening to us? What can we learn from this? So why did they die? And why did they die specifically during this time period, during Sphere Omer? Why is, why is this a time that they specifically fell victim to whatever they were doing that was somewhat wrong? And why did they stop dying on Lagba Omer? And it's interesting because the, the Omer period is like a mixed time. We're preparing for Shavuos, for the giving of the Torah. And um, that's like a happy time. We're, we're preparing for a wedding, basically, between us and Hashem. And... It's also a time of sadness. So it's a very strange, confusing time period. All right, and additionally, we want to know what's the connection with Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, at the end of, so after his 24,000 students died, uh, instead of quitting, instead of giving up, he got back up on his feet and he taught four more students. And from those four more students was Rabbi Shimon one of them was Rabbi Shimon, the other was Rabbi Meir. We have the entire Talmud came through those four students. And um, so it's a huge lesson for us in perseverance, getting back up again after having gone through a tragedy. And that is a message that the Jewish people have always been uh, accustomed to, to do. And that's really kept us going. Is go, When we go through tragedies, we pick ourselves up again. All right, so that's... So the question I want to know is the connection between Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon, and additionally, why are we celebrating Kabbalah, right? Right now in Moron, it was a tragedy that took place tonight, but it's why did that tragedy take place? Because thousands and thousands of Jews go to celebrate in the cave on the mountain of Moron where Rabbi Shimon is buried. Why? And we're talking about from the most Hasidic to Sephardim of all ilk, as well as non-religious Jews. It's such a, uh, something so special about this celebration, which isn't even biblical, yet thousands and thousands of Jews are drawn to it. What's the connection? Why is everyone going there? And what exactly are we celebrating? If we ourselves don't even learn Kabbalah, really, why are we all celebrating Rebbe Shimon? And there's a few other customs I want to mention about, Mar about Lagba Omer, which we have to understand. One is that we light bonfires. One of the main attractions at Meron is that they light huge bonfires. All the Hasidic Rebbe's come and light these fires and people throw in oil and uh, 
is, is huge bonfires, lots of music as well. And another custom on Log Bomber, which is a little bit strange, is that kids shoot bow and arrows. It's like a kid cu a custom in Israel. All the little kids have little bow and arrows that they're shooting little uh, pretend arrows. So again, what's the connection? And uh, like we know, if you've stuck around long enough, all Jewish holidays and all Jewish customs come from very deep Kabbalistic sources. So I want to try to understand that as well. So we're going to start to answer all these questions by looking at this week's Torah portion. Okay, if, I'm sorry if that was already a lot of questions, but we have to ask a few more. Okay, this week's Torah portion is Parshas Emor, and, which means speak. And it essentially deals, the main thing it deals with for the beginning of the Parsha is the Kohanim, the priests, and certain laws that the priests have that other Jews don't have. Right? The priests have to be especially careful with impurity. We've talked about in the past impurity, especially impurity through the hands of a dead body. They can't come close to a corpse except for of, of a close family member. And also who they can marry. Uh, Kohanim can only marry certain Jews. They can, uh, and there's, it's very specific who they're allowed to marry. So again, that's just an interesting thing about Kohanim. Then... We have uh, the end of the Parsha. Uh, then we have an interesting thing in the Parsha that talks about the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. And what is Kiddush Hashem? Last week we talked about what the word Kiddush means. Right? We translated poorly as holiness, but which really means, uh, well, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, what it means. But we talk about Kiddush Hashem, which is giving up a person's life for God. And the Torah actually says that there is a mitzvah to give up your life uh, rather than tra transgress the Torah. Now, we know that doesn't mean all mitzvahs. If someone says, eat pork or I'll kill you, you eat pork. There are only certain mitzvahs that you have to give up your life for, three to be exact. If someone tells you to worship an idol or to kill another person or to commit adultery, you must give up your life rather than do one of those three. Those are the three cardinal sins. But anything else, we don't, unless the person is trying to make a mockery of Judaism. If, it's an, uh, if they're trying to basically eradicate Judaism, and that's why they're telling you to eat pork, then you have to give up your life also. So I, I'm not telling you, don't do this at home. Ask your local Orthodox rabbi. God forbid we should never be pla placed in such a test. But... Um, that's essentially the idea. Don't, I'm serious. Don't go out and uh, if someone tells you to eat pork or something, don't give up your life. Make sure to speak it out with somebody. Okay? <laughs> Just uh, I know we live in a complicated world nowadays. But um, so the, the Torah calls it very clearly that, that you should sanctify yourself. You, you should sanctify Hashem's name. Sanctify God's name by not and not desecrate his name. So we got to understand what that means, because how could you make God's name holy? I mean, God is the essence of holiness, of separation, of connection, whatever, we're, however we're understanding Kedusha. So why in the world is that called Kiddush Hashem? And finally, the Torah concludes with going through all the holidays. Okay, go through all the holidays of uh, essentially of the Torah okay and now I want to tie those things that things together so let's talk about what it means holiness we talked about it last week the definition of holiness now I want to talk about what is it what is a holy thing a holy place a holy person 
in a holy time. What is that? Okay? Let's be very clear. Is Let's take an example of the Western Wall. Is the Western Wall holy? It's not? Okay, so Matt is saying God is everywhere. So how is the Western Wall a holy place? And yet we know that it is a holy place. The temple is a holy place. All right. So of course it's holy. It's uh, Julia says, of course it's holy. That's the place of the uh, the the temple, the base of Migdash. So of course it's holy. But Matt says, yeah, but at the end of the day, God is everywhere. It's just a building. It's just a wall. So whatever Haran says, whatever Haran says is true. So what do you say? Is there I'm such saying, a thing as a holy uh, place, or is is there not? So let me ask uh, let me ask you another question. What about the bathroom? Now, according to Jewish law, you're not allowed to learn Torah in the bathroom. Yeah. You're not allowed to make blessings or think about holy things in the bathroom. Is God in the bathroom? Well, it's, it's then how do you say the bathroom prayer? Oh, sorry. You say it outside the bathroom. Oops. Okay. <laughs> it depends on. No you know, more. No more reading. If you're in a if you're in a place with a with a safer Torah, the level of, of holiness is elevated. But a bathroom is a place of 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 uh, defamity. Okay, a bathroom is a not holy place. So does that mean God's not in the bathroom? What does it mean? It's not holy place. What does that mean? God is everywhere. It's the same right, question. Cool. It's the other side of the same question. Okay? Okay. So, one time, the Kutzka Rebbe, one of the famous Hasidic masters, he was known for being extremely sharp and for uh, saying very short lines that were like, would rip you apart and, and transform your world. And there are a lot of uh, famous Kutzkerisms. Which are just famous one-liners. So this is one of them. The Kutzka Rebbe one time walked into a synagogue, a yeshiva, a very high-level academy of his students who were learning Kabbalah and Hasidus and Talmud, Talmudic law, and he stood up in front of the room and he knocked on the table, and everyone became very silent. And he turned to them and he said, "Where is God?" And, of course, they, they thought if the Rebbe's saying it, it must be, uh, must be not so simple. First they said, God is everywhere, or God is in heaven. Well, no, it can't be God is in heaven, because God is on earth. God is everywhere. And he said, wrong. And they went back to the tables, and they were, the thumbs were flying in the air, and they were arguing and fist fighting. And finally, they turned to the Rebbe after many hours of debate, and they said, we give up. Where is God? And the Rebbe responded, wherever you let him in. So yes, God is everywhere, but we're not aware of God's presence everywhere. So the idea of a holy place, we described Kedusha last week. The word Kadosh means something that is distinct, distinguished, set aside. We said from the word Kadesha, a prostitute who's set aside, designated 
for a certain purpose. So holy things are designated, set aside for a specific reason, the opposite of a prostitute, for the purpose of connection. That if someone who's connected to everyone is connected to no one, in order to truly connect to someone, you have to disconnect from everyone else. And that's the idea of Kedusha. It's disconnecting from the world when we make Kiddush on Shabbos in order to connect in a deeper way to ourselves, to our family, to God. That's the idea of, uh, we said, marriage is disconnecting from everyone in order to be connected very deeply to one person. And that's the same idea of a holy place. A holy place is a place where you have the ability to connect in a deeper way because it's all about your mindset. You have the ability to connect to God, but God is everywhere. God is just as much in the bathroom. But it's not good to connect to God in the bathroom because that's going to degrade your understanding of God because the bathrooms are not distinguished. It's not designated for holy purposes. Does that make sense? So it's really all about your perspective. Okay? So now, what's the opposite of a holy place or a holy thing? So we said that there's something called in, in the vernacular, a Kiddush Hashem. The real Kiddush Hashem is in this week's Parsha, giving up your life for God. How, how can we make God holy? So in our vernacular, a Kiddush Hashem is when a Jew who is obviously Jewish, someone walking around with one of these, goes outside and does a good deed publicly for other people to see. And they say, wow, those Jews, they're such good people. There's a story of a guy who, uh, of, a, of a, a rabbi in, I think, Westchester, New York, who bought a chest from an old lady on Craigslist. And he got home and he opened up the chest and he found like thousands and thousands of dollars hidden in the drawer. And according to Jewish law, you're allowed to keep it, right? That's not, that's property. It's something that's, that she, she no longer, she clearly didn't know it was there. She gave up hope on it or whatever. It could be, it's debatable if you're allowed to keep it hundred percent, but regardless, he took that money and he, uh, and he gave it back to the lady and that's the right thing to do. And it was on TV because it's so rare that people do those things. So that is a Kiddush Hashem. You're sanctifying God's name. What are you essentially saying? You're saying that there's a God in this world. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So what's the opposite of a Kiddush Hashem? It's something called... Matt? Chilul Hashem. Chilul Hashem. Chilul Hashem is, comes to the world whole. And anyone who's ever made Havdalah after Shabbos, we say, Lahavdil bin Kodesh, Lachol. Chol is the opposite of Kodesh. It means mundane. Kodesh means sanctified, designated, connected. Chol means disconnected and mundane. Actually, also shares a word of, with, of sand. Sand is Chol, because sand is lots of little pieces that are fragmented. That's the idea. It's disconnected. So, a chilol Hashem, what does that mean? It means we're disgracing God's name. But what does the word chol really mean? So there are those that explain that it comes from the word halal. Halal in Hebrew, I believe, is actually was turned turned into an English word. Halo. 
Not hallowed. Hallowed means holy. Hollow means empty. The word halal in Hebrew means an empty space. Something empty, it also means a halal is also a corpse. Why is a corpse called a halal? Because a dead body is empty. What's it empty of? Soul. The soul. The soul gives life to the body. The soul fills the body. When a, when a soul leaves a body, that's death. What's the definition of life? Definition of life is body and soul together. That's the definition of life. When body and soul come together, you get life. A halal, a, 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 an empty vacuum, is when a soul leaves a body. The body becomes empty. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, that's why there's something called spiritual impurity that in court is because nature abhors a vacuum. When you have a soul that filled the body and then the soul leaves the body, what you're left with is an empty space and impurity fills that emptiness. Okay? So the idea of a chilol Hashem is what are you saying? When you go outside, when a Jewish person goes outside and does the wrong thing, they cheat, they steal, they're involved in a scandal, they cut the line in the supermarket, right? I told you this before, but I carry a baseball hat in my car because I'm not always the best driver. And every once in a while, I miss the exit. And you know how there's like a hundred cars that are on the ramp to get off the highway? And then there's that one guy who like goes right up to the very end and cuts in front of the whole line. So when I do that, and I don't do it intentionally, but every once in a while, you know, you miss the exit, you have to do it. I throw that baseball hat on my head because I don't want all those cars to see those dirty Jews. There they go, cutting the line again. They think they're better than us. Now, I would never do it intentionally, but every once in a while it happens. When a Jew walks around with one of these, the whole world is looking at you. The whole world. You ever notice when a Jew is involved in a scandal like Bernie Madoff, the newspapers make an emphasis to let you know that he's Jewish. They want you to know that was a Jew that did that because the world sees Jews and holds Jews to a higher standard. When Israel does the wrong thing, they are held to a magnifying glass. Other countries in the world, China, Iran, Darfur, Sudan, so many countries in the world that get away with murder. Saudi Arabia, when Israel does the wrong thing, the whole world is up in arms because the world holds us to a higher standard. And they should because we are... God's chosen nation. We have the Torah. We are obligated to live to a higher standard, to a higher moral level. We are obligated to teach the world that there's a God. That is what Kiddush Hashem is all about. Chil Hashem tells the world, the world is empty. There is no God. That's Chilol, Chalal. It's empty. It's a vacuum. The idea of a Kiddush Hashem is telling the world the world is full of godliness. God is everywhere. And that's why I have to do the right thing even though no one's looking. Even though no one's going to see me. The guy who got the thousands of dollars in the desk, no one would ever find out. And yet he returned it to the lady because God is everywhere. That's a Kiddush Hashem. You're saying that God exists in every place in the world. The world is not a vacuum. 
The world is full of godliness. You guys with me so far? Okay. So that's holiness in actions. And we have to reveal God in actions. We have to reveal that the world is full of God. A holy place is a place where it's easier, it's more tangible to connect to the divinity in that in that place, to remind you of the reality that all there is is God. They're also holy people. What's a holy person? So the Jewish nation is called an Am Kadosh, a holy nation. Mamleches Kohanim Vagoy Kadosh. A nation of priests and a, and a holy nation. A holy people. Because our job is to, is to reveal to the world that Kedusha, that connection. Our job is to be connected to God at all times. But there's another aspect to it, which is the Kohanim, the priests, are even more Kadosh than, than a regular Jewish person because it's a nation of priests, but then that nation of priests has priests themselves. And the goal is that all Jews should should be Kohanim. But uh, at this moment, we we lost that level. And now there are certain Jews that have a little bit higher distinction. In fact, we have one among us right now. Dan Daniel is a Kohen. That means he's a little more connected in some ways. He might not feel it all the time, but he does have a, a certain ability based on his bloodline to uh, to reveal that holiness. So, so the Kohanim have to live with a certain higher level of, of spirituality. What are the things they have to avoid? So they have to avoid dead bodies. Why? Because what's the job of a Kohen is to be... Kadosh. What's the definition of Kadusha? To connect to God. To bring, connect spirituality with physicality. That's the definition of life. Spirituality and physicality. So when a dead body is separated, the, the soul from the body, so that's the opposite of the job of a Kohen. A Kohen's job is to bring spirituality into physicality. And what did the Kohanim do all day in the temple? Is they brought animal sacrifices, they, and they ate a lot of barbecue. We were supposed to have a barbecue tonight. They ate a lot of barbecue. Why? Because eating, first of all, the act of bringing a sacrifice we talked about a few weeks ago, is taking your livelihood, taking your animalness, your animal soul, and giving it up, lifting up the physical to God. And it's the exact same thing that happens when we eat, is when you eat a cow, you take the cow, and all the energy in the cow, and all the physicality in the cow, and you lift it up. And now you have the ability to do something spiritual with that energy. If you live your life like a cow, so you're you're destroying the cow's life force and the soul's this cow's spiritual spiritual nature because you're much lower than a cow because you have free will, you have a soul, you can do much greater things with your potential. So if you live like a cow, you should not eat cow. You should eat grass. But if you live like a human being and you do spiritual things, holy things, and you use your free will to overcome your animal nature, so you should eat cow because you have now the ability to lift up that cow. The cow doesn't have free will. The cow never has the ability to do a mitzvah. All right, so good to see you. So, um, so that, and, and the third thing that, that the Kohanim have to be careful with is who they marry because, again, marriage is the bringing together of bodies and souls. Right, so that's because that's what happens in in giving birth is you create a, a you bring a soul and put it into a body. So, 
Additionally, this week's parsha talks about holidays. So what's the idea of a holiday? So we have we have holy places, we have holy people, and we have holy times. What's the idea of a holiday? So the way you call a holiday in the Torah is a moed. A moed means literally a meeting place. The temple, the uh, the the tabernacle in the desert, the original temple was called the Ohel Moed. Moed. It was a tent of meeting, a place where we met with God. So a holiday is a meeting place in time where we have the ability to connect in a deeper way to God. It's a place in time where God is more revealed. On Shabbos and on holidays, we have the ability to connect in a deeper way to God, just like in holy places. So there's a concept in Kabbalah called Ashan. Ashan means smoke. If you came to the uh, Kabbalah of uh, drugs class a few weeks ago, Ashan is... uh, the Hebrew word for smoke, it actually is an acronym for Olam Shana Nefesh. And this is a concept from one of the earliest Kabbalistic texts. Olam Shana Nefesh means, Olam means world, Shana means year, and Nefesh means soul. That everything in the world exists on three dimensions. The dimension of place, the physical world, the dimension of time, and the dimension of soul. That means that we have the ability to things are constantly paralleling themselves. So you have holy places, you have holy times, and you have holy people. And it, when you put those three things together, you get the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who goes inside the Kodesh Kadashim, the Holy of Holies, the holiest spot in the temple, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. And there you have the interface of all three of the holiest things. But in general, our lives interface on these three dimensions. So... That's this week's Parsha. So now I want to talk about uh, about Kabbalah a little bit. It's interesting to note that holy people, according to the Zohar, Rabbi Shimon is referred to as Shabbos. A holy person is called Shabbos. Because just like Shabbos is a place with more revelation, on Shabbos you get an additional soul. You have a deeper ability to connect to your soul on Shabbos. So too holy people are more connected to their soul. And when you're in their presence, you're able to connect to your soul in a deeper way. So one more thing I want to mention before we talk about Lagba Omer is what about praying at a grave of a holy person? Now, to some people, that might sound strange. It might sound idolatrous a little bit. Are we praying to the holy person? And the answer is no. We're not praying to the holy person. We're praying in the merit of the holy person, or we're praying that the holy person should be, go up and bring our prayers in front of Hashem, should should supplicate before Hashem in their merit. But perhaps more importantly, the place where the holy person is laid to rest becomes holy because their very body is holy because if a person lives their entire life connected to their soul so their body just becomes a vehicle for their soul unlike us our souls are a vehicle for our body our bodies are hungry our souls have to figure out how to get food so we kind of drive our bodies around but the goal is that the body should be completely subservient to the soul and it actually says in uh, different sources, Kabbalistic and Talmudic sources, that holy people, righteous people, Sadiqim's bodies, do not become impure when they die. 
because they literally lifted up their entire body. Their entire body became sanctified because they didn't live their life for bodily pleasure. They lived their life for spiritual pleasure. Their bodies were completely subservient to their souls. Their bodies actually become spiritual. So when they die, that place of their body actually becomes a place of connection between the spiritual and the physical. And some kohanim, although they're not allowed, priests are not allowed to go to grave sites or to cemeteries, some go to the graves of righteous people because the graves of righteous people are not impure. There's another tradition that the bodies of righteous people don't decompose. That's another uh, interesting thing. I actually saw that in uh, Hindu sources as well. That according to Hindu sources, the bodies of righteous people don't decompose either. Very interesting. Um, but there are a number of first-person accounts. Again, I can't verify it myself, but there are first-person accounts of rabbis' graves who have been uncovered. One famous story is by the Nazis, that the Nazis tried to desecrate the grave of one of the greatest rabbis in Poland, and they say when he op they opened his grave, he was completely fresh, and they ran away. They were so scared. So, uh, again, uh, there are stories like that, but uh, I can, I, I, I've never experienced it firsthand. But it, there is a tradition like that. But it's the same idea, same exact idea, that the decomposition of the body is because the person identified with the body, therefore the body has to decompose. But if you don't identify with your body, there's no need for it to decompose. The body itself is actually uplifted. The idea of the revival of the dead, there's something called Tchiasamesim, that in the next world, we will be brought back in our bodies. There's a certain time period of reward where we go back in our bodies and experience perfection on earth, body, and soul. And the reason for that is because your body was necessary in the process of your perfection. You need your body, so your body also has to experience that, that closeness to God. So, But that's for another discussion another time. So, um, Rabbi Akiva, at the end of his life, gave his he was being combed to death with hot, uh, hot combs. His skin was being combed off of him. And it says that he his students were crying. And Rabbi Akiva said, don't cry for me. My whole life I've wanted to give my life up for God. My whole life. And now I finally have the opportunity. As we say in the Shema, we say that we, you should love God with all your heart and with all your soul. And the Talmud says, even if you have to give up your life for God, that's what it means to love God with all your soul. And Rabbi Kiva wanted to give his life up. He wanted to fulfill the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, giving up his life for God. And he said, now I'm finally able to. And it says that he said the Shema, and his soul left him when he said Echad, when he said one, God is one. And we see and there, there are different commentaries that explain that his soul left in the oneness. He was so clear, all there is is God. Giving up your body is the greatest opportunity to recognize that God is the only reality. And that our life is just an illusion. So, but it's very interesting. But you see from Rabbi Akiva's life that he wanted to give his life up for God. His whole life. But he didn't. Because it's much greater to live for what you believe in than to die for what you believe in. And and there's, there's a famous rabbi, Rav Noach Weinberg, who once said, If you don't have something worth dying for, then you don't have something worth living for. And it's something very important for us as Americans to think about because we don't really care about anything other than ourselves. But we have to. We have to figure out what's greater than us and even greater than our family. 
And he said, and once you figure out what's worth dying for, now spend the rest of your life living for that thing. Because that's even greater. So, why are we celebrating on Lag Omer? So what is Kabbalah? So there's different uh, explanations to what Kabbalah is. But something that we often refer to Kabbalah as the Panemius HaTorah, which means the inner Torah, or Torah's Hanister, or Torah's Asod, which means the hidden or the secret Torah. So what does that mean? Hidden Torah, secret Torah, inner Torah? So there are essentially two main principles of Kabbalah, I believe. And uh, I'm by no means an expert, but I think there are two main principles that we learn from Kabbalah, and I think the rest is all commentary. Principle number one is that it's essentially the science of God. What is God? And principle number two is the science of the soul. What is the soul? And essentially the answer to question number one is there's nothing but God. And that's what Kabbalah teaches us, is that God is all there is, the only reality. And the second thing is, how do we connect to the soul? So Kabbalah teaches us that the soul is a chelik elokai mimal mamish, which means a piece of God himself. So what does it mean to connect to God? It means really to connect to yourself. Because in you is the greatest revelation of God. Just like we said, there are holy places and holy times. Well, guess what? You have that within you. All you have to do is learn to connect to your truest, deepest self. And that's, that's your ticket to connection to, to godliness. So this week, we're celebrating uh, seven weeks, seven energies, seven different emotional energies. We celebrate one each week all the permutations, the 49 days between Passover and Shavuos. This week is the energy called Hod. Hod represents, in Torah, Hod means like a glow. When Moshe came down from Mount Sinai, it says that his face was glowing. It was, he had Karen or Panov. He had rays of light on his face. And uh, it's which the Torah also calls Karne Hod, rays of Hod, splendor or glowing light that was shining off his face. This word, do you guys ever hear, uh, if you saw Borat, or uh, if you've ever hung out outside of a major Jewish community, you'll hear that a lot of um, a lot of white people think that Jews have horns. Did you ever hear that before? Hey Jew, where's your Jew horns? Some people think that we wear yarmulkes to cover our Jew horns. So where do they get that idea? The answer is, if you ever go uh, to the Vatican, which you shouldn't do, but there's a statue of Michael of Moses that was made by Michelangelo. And if you look at that statue, you'll be surprised to notice that Moses has two horns on his head. So the reason for that is because of a mistranslation of the Hebrew Torah into Latin through the Greek uh, in the New Testament, which says that Moshe came down from Mount Sinai with horns of light on his head. The word horn and and ray are the same word in Hebrew. Karen means a ray of light or a horn of light. Um, I actually wanted to say last year that the word corona, coronavirus, comes from the Latin word crown. A corona is a crown. is named so because the 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 um, the bacteria the virus has these these horns sticking out of it. So I want to 
saying that sometimes there are linguistic connections to Hebrew which the linguists don't even know about. And it's really the truth. So many times do we notice, I notice words in English that come straight from Hebrew. If you look in a dictionary, it says Latin or Arabic. So it could be it came to English through Latin or Arabic, but where did it come to, to Latin and Arabic from? It came from Hebrew. So it could be the word corona comes from the word karen, which means a, a ray of light, a horn, or a corner. A, a corner in Hebrew is called a, karana, a, a karen. So anyway, um, so hod means light, a glow. And it refers to the oral Torah. The oral Torah is connected to this, this energy of hod. Hod also means uh, thanksgiving, uh, humility, uh, a lot of things. But on this note, hod means this, this glow, this inner glow. And tonight, as we observe Lagba Omer, it, it is the energy of hod of hod. It's double hod, which means the inner, the inner light of the inner light. And that refers to the light of the soul. And if the oral Torah is hod, then the hod of hod is the Kabbalah, because that's the soul of the oral Torah, of the oral tradition. So this is the, the night of soul. It's the night of inner revelation. And Kabbalah teaches us, as does the Talmud, that every Jew is a different letter in the Torah. That there are 6,000 root letters in the Torah that correspond to 600,000 root souls of the Jewish people who went into Egypt. And each Jew represents a different letter in the Torah and a different unique light of the soul. Without, If one letter is missing from a Torah scroll, the Torah scroll is not kosher. You could throw it out. You shouldn't throw it out in the garden. You have to bury it. But it's not, you can't read from it. It has no holiness at that point. It loses its, its, its holiness. Every letter is necessary. And what that means is that every single Jew is necessary for that Torah scroll to be complete. So my Rebbe once said that if you look down on another Jew, what you're really saying is that your Torah scroll isn't complete. Because you, we need each other in order to complete our, our Torah. Our Torahs are all interconnected because we're all different letters in the Torah. So you have an inner light that I lack, and we need each other to complete each other's Torah. So the Tanya, famous uh, Hasidic text of the first Chabad rabbi, says in chapter 32, which is the, the number 32 means heart, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, in a chapter that's called The Heart of Hasidus, the heart of the Hasidic movement, says the following thing, I just learned it this morning, says that the more, the litmus test for your connection to spirituality and your soul is your ability to love other Jews. Because on the spiritual level, we are one soul. We're different bodies, but one soul. And the more you connect to your soul, the more you realize that I'm also part of your soul. And so is the other person, and so is the other person. We're all connected on the soul level. So the more spiritual you are, the more you love other people. And I'll tell you a cool story I heard today that um, one of my uh, one of my mentors in Israel, Rabbi David Aaron, said sent me the following story today. He put on a video. It was very cute. It says when he first started studying Kabbalah 
when he was first in Israel and he wasn't really so learned, he went into a Kabbalistic yeshiva and he wanted to check it out. And as soon as he walked into the room, the, the Kabbalist, the rabbi, was teach, in the middle of teaching and he suddenly he stopped and he looked up and he looked at him and he said, Oi. And my friend was like, oh my gosh. And he goes to sit down and then the rabbi turns to him and he says, come here. So he was like so embarrassed. He goes up to the front of the room and the rabbi pulls out an apple and he hands him the apple. And so the ra rabbi Aaron, who was a young guy in his 20s then, goes out to reach for the apple. And suddenly all the students in the hall say, no, no. He's like, what? And then the rabbi again reaches out the apple and he goes to take it. And all the guys go, no, 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 don't take it. And he looks around the room and they go like this. They put their hands out that he shouldn't take it. He should open up his hands and receive it. And the word Kabbalah actually means to receive. And then the rabbi turns to me and says, what have you been learning all this time? And the rabbi walks away before he could answer. So he said, what was the lesson this rabbi was trying to teach him? Is he'd been approaching Kabbalah as something I'm going to take. It's going to inspire me. I'm in this for my own inspiration, my own growth. And the rabbi was showing him, no. It's not the number one lesson. If you're going to learn anything from Kabbalah is it's about giving, not about taking. And sometimes giving means receiving from someone else. Because I'm giving you the gift of being able to give when I receive. But the one thing that it's not is taking. So we have to learn to run away. The number one lesson... My, that we can learn. My father once went to a class at the Kabbalah Center many years ago, and he, he heard this one lesson. He said it changed his life, that the goal of life is to, the number one goal of life is to run away from selfishness and taking, to learn to be a giver. And, and uh, that also includes being a receiver. So Rabbi Akiva taught, Rabbi Akiva, who we're also celebrating tonight, said that the number one principle of the Torah, if you had to summarize the entire Torah into one sentence, what would it be? Says Rabbi Akiva, Love your fellow like yourself. Love your friend like yourself. That is the entire Torah, says Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva taught that to his students. Love your friend like yourself. The only problem, and what's the foundational message of love your friend like yourself? What's at the root of it? Love yourself. You have to love yourself. And what's, what's at the root of loving yourself? Oh, so at the root of loving yourself is first of all having a self. Being a self. And inside yourself is God. So that's, the, that's actually the full Pasuk. The, Pasuk says, the verse says, Love your fellow like yourself. I am God. Because inside you is God. And when you love, your, when you connect to yourself, then you're able to love other people. Because they're also part of yourself. The problem is that the Talmud says that Rebbe Akiva's students took it too far. The message is you have to be a self before you can love others. And the Talmud says that the problem with Rabbi Akiva's students, the reason they died tragically through this plague, in a way that we can't say just a thing, but the Talmud says it, is because they didn't have enough honor for each other. They were too focused on their own spiritual growth. And they forgot that the goal of working on yourself is to love others. 
At the end of the day, the goal is to be a giver. The goal is not to be a taker. Sometimes it's necessary to work on yourself, but you have to remember that the goal of that, the reason is so that you can love others. So they said, I can't love my neighbor because I haven't yet mastered loving myself. And we can't forget the forest from the trees. And they died specifically during this time of the Sphira, because this is an intense time of working on ourselves. That's that we're supposed to be doing these 49 days. But we have to remember that the reason we're working on ourselves is so that we can receive the Torah. And it says in the Torah that when the Jewish people arrived at Mount Sinai, they arrived as one body. Like one, one person with one heart. They arrived at a level of such unity and connection to each other. So why specifically does everyone go to celebrate at Lagba Omer? And Maron, to the point of this year, tragically, uh, people, too many people having been there, is because everyone is connected on the level of Kabbalah. We're all connected, even if you're completely unlearned. Rabbi Akiva, who knew nothing, Rabbi Akiva was completely disconnected from Torah, and look at the potential that he had within him become the leader of the Jewish people. Without him, we would not have the oral tradition. He passed the entire thing down. The entire oral tradition comes from Rabbi Akiva through Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Meir and, and two other of his students. So we are literally all connected through the study of Kabbalah. We realize that we're all one. And that's why we light a bonfire on Lagba Omer and Maron because the soul is compared to a candle. Your candle, my candle, we each have a soul. But when you connect to the true light of your soul, you realize that we're all one flame. And that's the bonfire. We're all, we all share the same giant soul within us. And perhaps that's the message of the bow and arrow. Is something very unique about a bow and arrow. The bow and arrow allows you to connect to something really far away from you. Right? You can shoot someone all the way over there. How do you do that? Is the closer you pull that bow closer to your heart, the farther that arrow flies. That the more connected to your heart you go, the more you're able to connect to other people. That's the idea of the bow and arrow. And there's one other message of the bow and arrow is that the tighter the tension, the more you're able to play music from that bow. So we have to recognize that the tension in our life is an opportunity to find the music that can come out only from a place of tension. We have to make sure that the string doesn't break, it doesn't snap back, it doesn't shoot arrows at other people, but rather that the tension enables us to connect deeper to our own heart and deeper to others through the music of our soul. And that is the message of Lagba Omer, is that we each have the ability to be a holy place. That everywhere we go is a place, an opportunity to connect through the unique power of each and every one of our souls. We have the ability to bring Shabbos into every moment of our lives and every place of our lives and every interaction of our lives by seeing the holiness in each and every person that we encounter because ultimately all come from that same source and 
as the message of Kabbalah, that there is nothing empty in this world. There's no vacuum. There is, in fact, it's a debate in of the Kabbalists if God created a vacuum in the initial act of creation. And the Baal Shem Tov says, the, the Hasidic movement says, there's no vacuum. It's just an illusion of a vacuum because all there is is God and all there ever was has and ever will be is God. So that's the idea of a Kiddush Hashem, is to show that everything is connected and everything is full. The world is, world is full of godliness. The world is full of sanctity and divinity. Every person, every experience, every moment. And... God forbid, when a person does the wrong thing, they're saying that the world is empty, like a corpse without a soul. And that, I believe, is the message of Lag Omer, the message of the Parsha, the message of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shimon, and we should be Zoha, we should be blessed to connect to their teachings, and to connect to ourselves, and ultimately to connect to each other and to Hashem, who is this within us, as well as everywhere else. Thank you guys for listening. And now, questions, comments, or anything else.